0: We're beginning a series of six sermons on Sundays, and uh, small groups are following uh, this as well. Look, going through the um, letter of 1 Thessalonians in six sermons, so a a fairly uh, sort of high level, um, well, not not detailed view, but a a kind of a um, a broad sweep over over the letter. Um, And we're looking at holiness and hope in a hostile world. <clears throat> we, live, we live as Christians in challenging times, don't we? I think you'd agree with that. Uh, we live in a society that is both largely hostile and seemingly indifferent to the Christian faith. People seem to live their lives and be incredibly busy in what they're doing with almost no regard for spiritual things. Um, you know, you try raising uh, the subject uh, at work or whatever it, it's it can be hard work and yet and yet there are these kind of cross currents of there is a deep sense in people of a desperation to talk about spiritual things as well so despite the fact that it's almost taboo to talk about deep spiritual things in our society and we we kinda of busy ourselves to avoid it at all costs something like an alpha course shows you how desperate people are for the space and the time to talk about these things. But we crowd these deep conversations out with noise, with um, binge-watching on TV, with, with our phones, don't we? We do everything we can. We stay as busy as we can at work to avoid thinking about the deep things of life. And yet, there is a real hunger and thirst in people to talk about these things. And um, I've realized this, Um, at Alpha, you can have, you know, we've got high level engineers at McLaren, we've got a mathematician, and yet they're really glad of the opportunity to talk about spiritual things, which says something. So there is a lot of hostility out there, there's a lot of indifference, There's a lot of busyness, which crowds out the opportunities, but there's also people who really want to talk about faith and spiritual things. So it's a real hodgepodge, it's a real mixed bag, actually. I'm sure you've come across this. And that was exactly the situation that the Christians faced in Thessalonica. And the questions that the letter to the Thessalonians is asking, really, is how do you live out your faith? in a hostile and indifferent culture that's also spiritual. There are also people out there who are interested in spiritual things. So how as Christians do we live in our workplaces, our families, with our neighbours in the midst of all this hodgepodge? Well, Paul's letter helps us. It's likely the first letter that Paul wrote, and he wrote it to a church in northern Greece, Macedonia, and it's a model of how to reach out in mission in a challenging environment, okay? Now, if you think that our environment is challenging, just listen to the environment that Paul planted the gospel in, in Thessalonica. Now, if you want to know more about the city of Thessalonica talk to George because he has clients in Thessalonica and you go out there not infrequently George don't you so George will give you the lowdown on what Thessalonica looks like today but we're going to look at what it looked like back in the day a couple of thousand odd years ago so Acts 17 when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue as was his custom Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city." They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have, come, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Caesar. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> you got it. When they, <laughs> when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Great. Brilliant. So Thessalonica was not exactly a warm, welcoming environment. It was a real mixed city, right? So don't think... Don't let us think we've got it the worst than it's ever been. It's always been a difficult environment for the gospel, right? It's always been a hostile, indifferent, and yet open environment that the gospel's been seeded into. We don't have any more special claim than anybody else. Um, We are closer to the Lord's second coming. We are warned that there will be tribulations coming. But let's not kid ourselves that we've got it particularly hard, all right? We have the same opportunities that they did. So, second largest city in Greece. It was a thriving port and was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia in northern Greece. It was home to a whole host of Greek and Roman and Egyptian idols. Uh, There were temples everywhere. There were idols and statues everywhere. But above all, everything else, there was an emperor cult. Caesar was literally worshipped. There were temples, there were shrines, there were idols. So the Romans, to keep the peace in the city, allowed all these different faiths and philosophies to live side by side, so long as you declared allegiance to Caesar as Lord and King, and that you attended the feasts and the worship festivals that were celebrating uh, the um, the Roman feasts and festivals. So as long as you declared ultimate allegiance to Caesar as lord and king, you could worship whoever you liked. Right? That was the way the Romans kept the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So they were quite happy for all these religions and philosophies to coexist, so long as you didn't act with treason. In other words, you didn't challenge the the authority and the kingship of Caesar. You were fine. So you can imagine what happens when Paul and his companions come into Thessalonica preaching that Jesus is Lord and King and risen from the dead. That ain't going to go down too well, right? In a Roman city. Okay? That is an act of treason. And the Jews, who are jealous, stir up a riot in the city. There's a riot, a mob going on. All right? I don't see many riots in our community over Jesus being Lord and King, right? But that's what happened in Thessalonica. It was so subversive, so disloyal to Caesar, what Paul and his companions were doing by declaring that Jesus is Lord and King. What a ringing endorsement this church gets, though, from Paul. You know, when you sometimes read the beginning of one of Paul's letters and all this thanksgiving is poured out and you think, why? Why is he doing that? Well, there's a number of reasons that Paul gives thanks to God for these believers. Um, it's the custom in the early letters that Paul wrote and in the letters generally to outline some of the themes that will come up later in the letter. So faith, love and hope, that triad, comes again and again through the letter of Thessalonians, Thessalonians right? So you get that in the letter. You get that in the letter. Another reason is that Paul is modeling thanksgiving, right? We are too quick to moan as Christians about woe is me and give God a shopping list of petitions. We need to begin with worship and thanksgiving, who God is, what he's done, and it's only from there that we can then bring our petitions to him, right? When we anchor our petitions and prayers in who God is, his sovereignty, his power, his goodness towards us, his faithfulness, then our petitions are put in proper perspective, right? That's why Jesus doesn't start with, forgive us our sins in the Lord's Prayer. He starts with our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Worship is where you start, right? Thanksgiving recognizing God for who he is. And the other thing Paul's doing in the thanksgiving part of the letter is he's encouraging these Thessalonians. He's feeding back, reflecting back to them just how well they're doing. Right? That's a good thing to do with people, isn't it? If you want to praise somebody and encourage them, reflect back to them, feed back to them, you're doing a good job for these reasons. I thank God for you. Um, If you want to If you want to um, encourage somebody, why don't you write an email or a note and just say, I thank God for these spiritual gifts that I see you serving with. That's a great way to thank somebody, yeah? I thank God for you and the way that you're using your God given gifts. So he wants to encourage them. And Paul knew that this letter would have a wider circulation than just the church in Thessalonica, right? Thessalonica. And so he's writing it as a model of mission to other churches. He's saying, basically, look, other churches, here's a model of how to do mission in a hostile context. Follow this lot. They're doing a good job. Be like this. And you might add to that, Paul would say to us today, be like the church at Thessalonica. Imitate, model, follow this model that I've given you in Thessalonica. These guys are doing well. Follow them. Imitate them. Be like them, right? So that's why we get the thanksgiving. Does that make sense? Right. It's not just a kind of courtesy, let's fill out the letter a bit more and add another page stuff. It's important. So what can we learn from the Thessalonians about how to do mission in our indifferent, hostile, but also open context, right? Because it's all three of those things. And that's exactly what it was in Thessalonia. First of all, we learned that this was a community of faith, hope, and love. Verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, faith is the engine that drives good works, right? If you try to do good works in your own strength and motivation, what happens? You get worn out. You dry up. It becomes begrudging and dutiful. Who's who's ever given service that's begrudging and dutiful? You, You feel dry. Oh, I don't know if I can... Come on, I've got my hand up here. Come on. You're you're still going to make it to heaven. It's all right. All right? You'll get in. Maybe you're on the back door, but you'll get in with me on the back door. All right? We know what happens, right? We're just going through the motions. We're churning it out. Faith is the confidence and assurance that Christ has saved us, is saving us, and will save us for eternity, right? And when you have that confidence and assurance in your soul, when you have the gift of faith stirring you up, you will want to, desire to, love to work for Jesus, right? So we have to constantly work out our faith. We have to stay rooted, connected to Jesus the vine, the source of our faith, right? Um, So the next one is love, isn't it? The love of the Thessalonians prompted their labor. Now the word labor here is probably their service in the church. Work is a bit more general. It could be uh, serving their families and, and doing work out in the secular environment. Labour is labouring in the gospel, labouring by serving in the church, and their love prompts their labour. Again, um, it is possible to serve in the church using um, the gifts that we have without love. Frankly, it's possible to do that without a lot of compassion and love for people, you. Can just go through the motions. You can be dry and dutiful in it, or you can be filled with love and compassion in doing it. Um, We need to constantly ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with love. Romans 5, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love into our hearts. We need to constantly be asking for more love. From the Holy Spirit to be poured into our hearts because we run dry we run out right we run out of love every day we need to ask God to pour out more love into our hearts so that we are loving people as we labor as we serve and lastly hope um, The hope of the Thessalonians inspired their endurance. They were really up against it, the Thessalonians. They were being persecuted for their faith. Literally persecuted. You can see, you know, when Jesus is preached, there's riots in the city. That's real persecution, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Threats, physical threats, not just insults, name-calling, physical threats. And they, can, they are inspired by hope. And it is the hope of the final return of Jesus Christ. In other words, they were so inspired by the fact that this life was not the only life, but actually Jesus was coming again. And if they persevered to the end, they would inherit eternal life. Their perspective was so eternal that they were prepared to endure through the suffering of living as Christians in a hostile environment, right? Yes. I think it was an old folk song wasn't it this world is not my own my home I'm just a passing through it's true for us we are pilgrims on a journey and uh, when we realize that this world is not the uh, is not our final home that we're heading for an eternal destination we will be willing to endure persecution and insults as Christians because we know this is not our final destination right makes sense Um, Second, we learn that this was a community where the gospel was demonstrated in power as well as words. Verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Um, I'm always encouraged when people come to faith and you can see that there's nothing of them that's brought this about. It's, it's entirely a work of the Holy Spirit. I can think of a couple of examples recently where the Holy Spirit has literally visited people and caused them to turn to Jesus. It's, it's kind of a miracle thing, right? It's a miracle. You know, that deep conviction is not something we can work up as human beings. It's a gift. It's the gift of faith. The Holy Spirit opens eyes and softens hearts and puts people in a position where they can receive and believe in Jesus. He literally removes the scales from people's eyes and softens their hearts. We cannot work up enough faith to get saved. It's a miraculous reality. It's a gift. Um, And when you see that deep conviction in somebody whose life has been turned upside down by the power of God in the Holy Spirit, opening their eyes and heart to the gospel, that's powerful, isn't it? We've had some testimonies and baptisms recently that testify to that reality. But also, what Paul is talking about here is that when Paul preached, there were authenticating signs and miracles. You can see that all the way through the book of Acts. You know, The signs and miracles accompanied the preaching of the gospel. They gave it authority and authenticity. It was as if the signs and miracles themselves showed how powerful the gospel was to bring physical and emotional healing, but ultimately spiritual healing. They were were signs that pointed to the power of the gospel to change lives. And so we need to pray in our church for the gospel to come with great power, bringing conviction in the lives of people. So as you're praying for Alpha, pray that the Holy Spirit would bring that conviction, would turn people's lives upside down. We have um, we have an away day on March the 7th. Pray that there'd be healings, physical healings, emotional healings. But above all, pray that there would be Spiritual healing, that people's eyes would be opened, their hearts would be convicted, and they would become Christians for the first time, right? That's a miracle. All of that is a miracle. The miracles are not just the physical healings. The miracle is is also when somebody's heart turns to Jesus for the first time. Let's not separate those two. There are spiritual, physical, and emotional miracles that God can do. Third... Uh, we learn that this was a community that imitated Jesus in boy- being joyful through the Holy Spirit in suffering. Uh, verse, eight, verse 6, sorry. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. Apologies for the typo. That should be a capital H. Holy Spirit. Um, carry on. There another. No, sorry, Susie, you were right. I was wrong. Just that's verse six. This was a community that was persecuted, but they were a community that was marked by joy. A deep seated security and contentment in the Lord. That's a challenge to us, isn't it? Despite the physical persecution that would have been involving. Ostracization from families, isolation from families, loss of jobs, loss of homes, imprisonment and all the rest of it. These guys were filled with joy. Mm. (laughs) They were content, secure, happy in the Lord. Do you feel the challenge? You welcome the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering severe suffering not an ingrowing toenail severe suffering joy is a fruit of the holy spirit that grows supernaturally we don't want people kind of hop in and skip in falsely do we right We want people who are filled with the supernatural fruit of joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it, joy? We can ask for it to grow in us. Even in suffering and persecution, we can ask that the Holy Spirit would grow more fruit in us, right? Yes? It grows. But you have to be willing for it to grow. You have to ask the Spirit to grow more fruit in you and me. And we have to abide in the vine. Jesus, the source of that fruit. We have to pray to Jesus. That's how we abide in the vine. We have to meditate on his word. That's how we abide in the vine. We have to ask for more of the spirit. That's how we abide in the vine. So ask for more joy. Um, You see, the reason that they were persecuted and isolated even from their own family units was because they refused to join the worship cult of Caesar. They refused to go to feasts where Caesar was celebrated as Lord and King. And so they risked being kicked out of their own families. They risked everything for Jesus. Um, We may face... Being feeling socially isolated, even in our own family, for our faith. Right? You may be the only person in your family who's a Christian. You may be married to somebody who's not a Christian. Many, many spouses are very supportive if they're not Christians, but there are some who are not supportive, who will do everything they can to not be supportive. You may be in a workplace where you're the only Christian you may suffer some mocking some ridicule for your faith god wants to give you joy in that context as you bear witness to jesus in fact so much so that this is what peter says in 1 peter 4:14 4, if you are insulted listen to this because of the name of christ you are blessed I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. If you're insulted, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Wow. Do you hear that? If you are mocked, insulted, ridiculed for your faith, the spirit of glory, the Holy Spirit rests on you you are blessed. In other words, you are authenticated as a child of God. You are the real deal. You are being insulted and persecuted, mocked and ridiculed precisely because you are showing people what it means to be a Christian. And so the spirit of glory rests on you. Isn't that amazing? God pours out his Holy Spirit on those who are mocked and insulted for their faith in a special way. He strengthens. He gives joy in the midst of that kind of suffering. Some of you might have experienced that. He loves to pour out his Spirit on you, particularly in those situations. Do you remember Stephen, as he was being stoned under the direction of the Apostle Paul, called Saul at the time, he had the face of an angel, we're told in Acts 7. How? Because of the supernatural presence and power of the Holy Spirit in him. Because the spirit of glory rested on, on Stephen. He had a big smile on his face because he looked up and he saw Jesus standing in heaven, pouring out blessing on him. That's what God will do for us if we ask him. Fourth, we learn that this was a community. Yeah, sorry, it's not a Spurgeon sermon. (laughs) Just in case you thought I was coming to an end. Fourth, we learn that this was a community that modelled passing on the gospel. Verse 7. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. In other words... This church got to be famous and renowned for being completely Jesus-centred and for its people having become completely transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Their loving actions and words and character and works were so famous that they'd become known throughout the whole area, not just in northern Greece, but further afield than that. The message had literally rang out from them, reverberated over a large area. They were Famous. They were famous for their Jesus-centred lives. The verb rang out occurs only here, and it means a loud sound which travels far and wide. A loud sound which travels far and wide. I learnt the trumpet and the bugle growing up when I was in the boys' brigade. And we used to parade through the village on a Sunday morning. With drums, bass drum, bugles, the full works. Glock and spiel, we had the lot, right? And I was on the trumpet. Sometimes people were not all that happy to see us. At 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, even back in the 80s, or wherever it was. And we used to have people leaning out the window, sometimes, um, you know, blessing us. Why? Because the sound reverberated far and wide. We were certainly famous in the village on a parade Sunday, for all, well, for a mixed bag of reasons, I think. But you know, the point is, the idea of ringing out is a loud sound far and wide. The Thessalonians' faith was so powerful that it rang out far and wide over a large area. It was obvious that their lives had been turned upside down because their actions their works their labors were prompted by love filled with hope and joy and it reverberated everywhere makes you wonder doesn't it what are we what are we famous for as a church in our community and beyond yeah I was amused but well, I'm not amused I think it's a great question you know in the um, in the doctors surgeries you get the the friends and family test you know where you have to ask you know, you ask people what their experience was like of going to the doctor and all that. Well, it'd be interesting to, to ask people, what's your experience of Heatherville Baptist Church, wouldn't it? Ask the clients, the people that come through the door, what do you what do you make of us? Friends and family test, yeah? Be interesting, wouldn't it? Are we famous for being filled with joy? Are we famous for being filled with love? Are we f- famous for being a people of hope? Are we famous for being a people of faith? It's Challenging, isn't it? I, th- I, think, I think we do have some good reputation. When you knock on the doors and you ask people in the area, there is some good feedback. But there's a long way to go as well, isn't there? Compared with this model in Thessalonica, right? Sorry, am I stepping on toes? Okay, that's a sore area. <laughs> <laughs> The gospel made such a massive difference that it reverberated from this church into the community. Oh, pray that we would become famous for all the right reasons. Yeah? Pray that we would become known as the place where people's lives are changed and turned upside down. Pray that we would become known as a place of hospitality and love and welcome. Right? Where our deeds and actions match the words that we use, right? Where lives of authenticity and integrity are apparent to everyone, right? Pray, pray, pray. Fifthly, we learn that this was a community that had turned away from idols to serve the true and living God. Verse 9. This is the last point in case you're getting worried. Okay? For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn from God to idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. Ooh, Mr. Nen. Do you know what? i read through this millions of times. <laughs> <And I laughs> Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Um, well, never mind. Uh, I'm bugged now by my typos. Throne. In a city full of false gods and idols, the Thessalonian Christians had turned away from all this idolatry to only serve the true and living God, knowing that they would be persecuted and would be up on an act of treason by saying that only Jesus is the true Lord and King. That's a big deal, isn't it? Can you imagine if you were a Muslim, right, in a Muslim family, and you turned to Jesus... You would be ostracized potentially, not necessarily, but potentially ostracized from your family. Because you're declaring allegiance to Jesus, not just as a prophet, but as the Lord and King of your life, as God. That's a big deal. That's the level. It's a big deal. You might say, well, what's that got to do with me? Well, isn't our culture full of idols, folks? Isn't it? An idol is anything that we love and serve more than we serve Jesus, right? That's a definition. Anything we give our hearts to more than we give to Jesus. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Why is it then that our culture loves Just about everything but Jesus. Everybody worships, a novelist, an American novelist says. It's just who they worship. People worship career. They worship um, pleasure. They worship retirement, even. Everything will be better when I retire. Right? They worship material possessions. They worship relationships. Relationships. You know, you can often tell what people worship because the language will be something like, "Everything will be okay when this falls into place, right? When this changes, when this relationship sorted out, when this, when my career is sorted out, everything will be great, and I'll be happy." And there's a danger there of idolatry, of worshiping created things rather than the Creator, right? That's idolatry. Some people worship fitness, don't they? You know, get a buzz. Keeps me going. And that's great. Nothing wrong with fitness and health. I wish I had some. <laughs> Honestly, there's nothing wrong with it. The, these are all good things, right? But when they become the be-all and end-all and our love and passion, something's wrong. It's, it's, it's what Augustine called disordered loves, Right? The only person we love and serve ultimately is Jesus is our Lord and King. There are so many idols in our culture. Here's one of them. Freedom. I am free to be whoever I choose to be and whatever I choose to be. It's one of the biggest idols in our culture. Sorry, guys. No, you're not. You know, the the message is I am free of constraint to be whoever I want to be. You you can hear it in Disney movies, you can hear it in pop songs, you can see it in literature. I am free to be whoever I want to be. There are no constraints on me to be whoever I want to be. Mm, If only. Even somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, and who doesn't have the constraints, so say, of the Ten Commandments and of the Bible, none of us live completely free in reality. We all live with constraints. There are, there, there are constraints on our time. Some try to run away to Canada to get away from constraints, don't they? I'm not naming names, right? Some try to get away from constraints on them, but they find that the constraints just follow them across the sea, right? <laughs> what do we mean? I, I'm, I'm, I've got no view on that at all, as you can see. We have constraints of family, relationships. Our relationships cause us to need to sacrifice and commit to others. We can try and run away from them, but they don't stop being our family. They still pull at our heartstrings. We still love them. There's still constraints on us as human beings, right? However free we think we are, we can never get free. And those who think they're the most free often end up addicted, right? Uh, Russell Brand tried to live completely freely in his autobiography and found that he ended up addicted to drugs and sex. And now he he has a really interesting viewpoint. If you can bear to read Russell Brand, his pretty, language is pretty blue, but he's a really interesting guy. Because he has a totally different view of freedom these days, having been an addict, right? You don't have to read Russell, it's okay. I don't want to... Because some of you... Seriously, some of you might be offended, and I'll get in trouble. So please don't read it. No, don't read it. Don't read it. That's just that's just me. The only the only true the only true freedom the only true freedom is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, let me illustrate. I, I've given this story before, but it's uh, I'll, it's only a quickie. All right, trust me. I was once asked to referee. At, uh, I was a teacher, right? I was one starts to referee a football game and I didn't know the rules. Year nine. Seriously, I didn't I didn't understand all the rules. I played football, but I'd never thought, what's what's the difference between a direct and indirect free kick? Didn't have a clue. I just play the game, right? So I'm so I'm reffing, because the PE teacher couldn't get there and he said, Martin, you'll have to do it. You're young, get out there. Parents on the touchline, you get the picture. So I thought, I thought, okay, I'm free, I'm free to interpret the rules, (laughs) how I want to interpret them, because I don't understand all the rules. You try refing offside, seriously, I'll tell you, it's one thing to play, another to ref it, and I got so many decisions wrong because I I decided I'm not going to try and ref it properly. I'm going to be free to do it my way. There was a riot. On the touchline. There were parents fighting. We had to, we had to get another teacher in to, to calm people down. It was chaos. I never refed another match. My freedom, seriously folks, my freedom led to chaos. Russell Brand's freedom led to chaos. Right? We are truly free when the sun sets us free. You will be free indeed. Jesus said... I have come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. God set a loving constraint on Adam and Eve. He said, you can enjoy all of these thousands and thousands of trees in the garden, but that one you're not to touch, because I am your Lord and King. And they chose to rebel. Constraints are good for us. Constraints and rules and laws are there to constrain us. If a swimming pool has no sides on it, the water runs away. Right? There's nothing to swim in, okay? We need to swim in God's grace contained in the walls of the swimming pool, right? That's a bad analogy. Where did that come from? Anyway, it's there, isn't it? Whatever. I I think cake. If cake can get through to a scientist, swimming pool might just work. So, hey, whatever. Do you see what I mean? Freedom is in Christ, right? Right? Freedom is in Jesus. When we follow, love, serve Jesus and him only, we find joy, freedom, contentment. All these other things, fitness, food, family, are good gifts from the creator to be enjoyed with thanksgiving, but that's what they are. They're not to be loved and served and worshipped. They're not the king and lord of your life, right? Otherwise they become a disordered love, an idol. And boy, have we got loads of idols in our culture. We, just, we might not make statues, but we certainly make celebrity statues, don't we? And worship them. Uh, where on earth have I got to? Here we go. Okay, I'm, I'm coming into land. Good, you say. What we learned from the Thessalonians is that a church that receives the gospel must be changed by the gospel if it's to have authenticity and ring out to others, right? Right? We need to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. We need to be people of integrity, authenticity, whose actions and labour match the words that we say. So if we sing about loving God and serving God on a Sunday, we better be the most loving people when we serve others, in our workplaces, our families, wherever our front line is. We better be people whose labour is prompted by love, whose faith inspires endurance, and whose good works are prompted and motivated by um, faith, right? That's the call on us, folks. God is calling us to be a church from whom the message of the gospel rings out into this community in words and in deeds. That we have a reputation that travels far and wide of loving Jesus... In every aspect of our lives. When I was, um, we'll, we'll sing in a moment. When I came, when I was coming to prepare for this, I sensed that God was saying that He's going to give pictures and prophetic words to people in response to the sermon. So I'm going to trust God for that. All right. In other words, I've spoken a lot but God's going to speak in some pictures and some prophetic words It's going to help you and encourage you to apply this message to your heart, right? Are we open to this? Let's ask God, shall we? Holy Spirit, thank you that you love to speak to us. And I pray